JustLiberty.org It's good for you and it's good for me JustLiberty.org JustLiberty.org Hi, this is Amanda Marzullo, and welcome to the September 2019 episode of Reasonably Suspicious. Scott, a study released earlier this year found that junk food sales increased in states that legalized recreational marijuana. Ice cream sales went up 3%, cookie sales increased by 4%, and chip sales increased by more than 5%. So are you surprised? The only thing I'm surprised at is that Texas companies like 7-Eleven and Bucky's or Bluebell and Frito-Lay haven't already become huge contributors to pot legalization campaigns. Those folks are leaving serious money on the table by having pot illegal <laughs> Marijuana legalization raises all boats. It really does, and, and especially the junk food industry, apparently. <laughs> Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the September 2019 episode of Just Liberty's Reasonably Suspicious Podcast covering Texas criminal justice policy and politics. I'm here today with our good friend Mandy Marzullo, who's executive director of the Texas Defender Service. How are you doing today, Mandy? I'm great. How are you, Scott? I'm better now that we're getting to this. We're a little late this month, but what do you do? It happens. We have a fine show coming up for you folks. Today, federal judges weigh in on bail reform. A conservative think tank confronts police unions. And a new civil rights lawsuit aims to make the Texas prison system treat prisoners with hepatitis C. Mandy, what are you looking forward to talking about today on the podcast? Police unions. Ooh, that's a good one. Yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to that one, too. Well, let's get right into it. First up, Federal District Judge Lee Rosenthal issued a 53-page approval of the settlement agreement in the Harris County bail litigation, rebuffing objections from Harris County District Attorney Kim Ogg and the bail bond industry. The DA, in an amicus brief, essentially adopted the Willie Horton argument, identifying several cases in which defendants had committed serious crimes after being released on personal bond. But Judge Rosenthal refused to take the bait, responding that Ogg's position was, quote, essentially an argument for incarcerating every arrestee and defendant until trial. Meanwhile, in Galveston, Federal District Judge George Hanks issued an injunction requiring that county to provide an attorney for felony defendants at the initial hearing setting bail. This case was the first in Texas to extend some of the bail reform arguments applied to misdemeanors in Harris County to felony defendants. So, Mandy, what stood out to you in these cases? Well, I think there's a, a lot to unpack, but kind of starting with Harris County, the case really goes to the heart of our bail industry or our bail system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and basically saying that it's premised on a fallacy, that the idea that it, someone who posts money is more likely to appear in court and less likely to pose a threat to the public isn't rational. And right. so it just means they have more money. Yeah. So, I mean, it does have a lot of implications for, for the rest of Texas. And so, and, and Louisiana and Mississippi in the fifth circuit. So I think that that is exciting with the, the consent decree that sort of preliminarily approved the solution that they worked out is pretty elegant. Now it only applies to misdemeanors, but the the idea that they have you know sorted out the sort of nonviolent crimes that someone could be arrested for and saying everyone is released, and then we focus our resources and time on those cases where someone is arrested for a violent offense, like family violence or assault, makes a lot of sense. 
Right. And 85% of the cases are not those and will just be released on personal bond automatically without having a bail determination hearing. So I agree that is a very elegant solution. It remains to be seen how broadly that can be applied in the areas like Galveston, where we're talking about felony defendants. But it's a, a very interesting way to think about it. It avoids a lot of the debates about risk assessments and mm-hmm. other things and just says, okay, there's no real need to have even a bail determination for a lot of these. Let's just let folks go because we know it's not worthwhile to keep them there. I was really interested in how Judge Rosenthal addressed the DA's and the bail bondsman's arguments because mm-hmm. she really goes out of her way to take every argument seriously and address it thoroughly. And I I know she she needs to for purposes of the consent decree, but she really almost gave them more deference than than I really thought (laughs) needed to be. At one point, she says, well, I'm not saying, you know, that anyone's making any of these arguments in bad faith. Well, gosh, I thought some of them were pretty out there. I mean, the bail bond industry would just make a declarative sentence, list a bunch of cases that didn't seem to apply and have no argument whatsoever. And she said that explicitly and just kept saying, okay, well, you didn't really make an argument here, so that's gone. You didn't make an argument here, so that's gone. And I thought that, you know, she very thoroughly addressed Kim Ogg's claim that the settlement agreement violated state law. Mm-hmm. She did recommend a couple of amendments to the settlement agreement to accommodate uh, what Og's criticisms were. Honestly, I didn't even think after reading her explanation that they were even necessary. Yeah, there was one from the bail bond industry that, that she recommended changes to the consent decree over, and I'm not sure it's necessary. And it, it dealt with an argument that the consent decree was inconsistent with the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure. What they're looking to are the repercussions when someone fails to appear. Now, the, the consent decree says that the judge will not issue a warrant for someone's arrest or forfeit their bail if the person didn't receive notice that they needed to, to appear, which makes a lot of sense, right? right. If you're going to restrict someone's liberty, make sure that they were aware that they needed to be somewhere. That's right. And the bail bondsmen were saying, nope, even if they didn't receive notice, you have to go ahead and forfeit the bond and, and issue a warrant. The justification that they're looking to is the bond forfeiture provisions in Chapter 22 of the Code of Criminal Procedure, which deals with when the money that someone puts up is considered forfeit, not whether someone's going to be arrested. Right. And that doesn't make sense. Essentially, it makes more sense to consider money that has been posted to be presumptively forfeited if you fail to appear and then allow someone to defend it. But it's more of a back-end process when you're talking about infringing on someone's liberty. Right. And especially when we're talking about Harris County, where after Hurricane Harvey, the courthouse had been flooded and they dispersed the courts all over the city. And there was a massive problem with people not getting notices in time for them to show know to show up where they were supposed to show up. There were all sorts of missed court dates that really were not the defendant's fault, but were just because in the in the wake of Harvey, their systems were overwhelmed. Well, Houston now floods like a bowl every time it rains. Just last <laughs> week, it, we, we had this massive flooding again there. And so that's not just a one-off. That's something that, you know, foreseeably could happen quite a bit in the future. And to say, no, 
you know, even if you didn't get noticed, you get arrested if you don't come in. Come in. Really doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's just going to waste resources. It doesn't make sense. You can't consider someone's liberty to be the same thing as money that they deliberately post. Right. You know, the Galveston case is very exciting, too, because it's the first time that they've said, okay, this is also going to extend. The federal courts have said that this is also going to extend to felony cases. You know, it is really exciting that that it applies across the board. You know, it is a preliminary injunction. Right. So it's not as comprehensive as anybody would like. So I was really surprised with the carve outs. The the big thing about the injunction, which you said in your layout, was that it requires that the county provide an attorney for bail determinations. But there there are two big carve outs. One is if it's a city magistration that's off the premises. And the other is if someone is arrested pursuant to a warrant. And those two situations or carve outs don't seem to be nuanced enough. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes a municipal judge is deputized by the district courts to conduct these magistration hearings. If that's the case, you don't want to exempt them from that. Right. And then with a warrant, that means that someone has made a probable cause determination, but it doesn't mean that someone has looked at their finances and criminal history to determine what circumstances of bail is appropriate. That's right. And, And by contrast, in the Harris County case, they had said, okay, if you have previously forfeited your bond and have a warrant out, then they can be detained. But this is much broader yeah, than that. exactly. So, and I will say, it's a big deal for them to say, even in felony cases, we're going to have to provide counsel at that bail hearing because most jurisdictions simply do not do that. I was listening to some judges in a candidate forum the other night here in Austin, and Travis County is absolutely not doing that right now. And so if every county in the state, after the Fifth Circuit ends up ruling on this, ends up having that requirement, it's going to be a very big deal. Yeah. and, and, And hopefully, you know, I think there'll be some growing pains with it no matter what. But having defense counsel in these hearings is going to make sure that the judges make informed decisions. In related news, Houston Police Chief Art Acevedo blamed local judges implementing bail reform for a police officer being shot. Quote, we need the courts to do their job and to stop pussyfooting with violent criminals, period, he told local TV. Quote, if you lived in a high crime area, And you knew that these judges were going to let a violent criminal go in one door and within a matter of hours or a day or two, get out on a low bond. Do you want to testify against them? The chief said to a reporter on the nightly news. However, it turned out that there's more to the story. The victims who had been carjacked spent hours driving around for the stolen car and reported it to to police when they found it. The driver identified the carjacker at the scene and later that day went down to the Houston PD robbery division and identified him again in a photo array. But police only charged the man with misdemeanor criminal trespass, not armed robbery, and didn't submit an affidavit to the DA documenting the new charges until seven days after the crime was committed. Scott, was bail reform at fault here? Hell no. Oh my gosh. that This claim is... Asinine, Asitin, As11, 
however many asses you need. It, it's that many. Oh my gosh. This is Art Acevedo blaming local judges and blaming bail reform for a problem <laughs> that his officers are 100% responsible for. The idea that a victim had identified the robber not once but twice in the same day mm-hmm. after having driven around for five hours looking for their own car because HPD was probably not going to find it. Yeah. So she basically did all the work for him. And she shows she uh, stays for the show up. She comes back down to the robbery division to do a, a photo lineup. And it's not anyone's fault but the cop that they didn't turn in the paperwork. She had signed the affidavit mm-hmm. after uh, doing the photo array. And just submitting all of that to the DA is all that was needed to move it forward. But when the defendant showed up for the bail determination the following day, there was no other charge besides misdemeanor criminal trespass. Well, especially under the new bail regime, that doesn't get you detained. And so there's no way anyone could have known that there was something more serious to look at. And it's just outright demagoguery to blame the judges for it. I found it very opportunistic and just a just kind of gross really um, yeah and and not solving the problem well it's not even trying it's trying <laughs> he, he's trying to create problems for the judges and he's trying to create obfuscation over the effects of bail reform to smear bail reform and say oh this is getting cops shot actually it's your cops getting their colleagues shot by not doing their job yeah and whatever excuse those officers have for not having turned in the paperwork it's not good enough and so i really found that disappointing and and just outright demagogue at a minimum he i i hope he gets to a point where he can view this as an opportunity because if if paperwork isn't being turned in on time bail reform provides them with an opportunity to just prioritize cases like this right the more serious cases and and to let let the action don't focus on the actual criminal trespasses focus on the carjacking well in theory i would i would hope it would cause that sort of reprioritization of resources but i found this to be just an outright bad faith and so when someone's acting in bad faith i don't know that they're looking for opportunities for improvement (laughs) i think they're looking for opportunities to deflect blame and that's what was happening here in Mm -hmm. my opinion The last of our top stories involves a new federal civil rights lawsuit against the Texas prison system, alleging that prisoners suffering from hepatitis C aren't receiving treatments that are considered the modern standard of care by free world doctors. New drugs to treat the disease are expensive, costing between $13,000 and $18,000 per prisoner. So with 18,000 Texas prisoners already diagnosed with hep C and most prisoners having never been tested, the cost for paying for treatment could run over half a billion dollars. At the same time, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that when states incarcerate someone, they become responsible for providing health care services, and doctors have told the state legislature they aren't providing the established standard of care in these cases. Mandy and I recently caught up with attorney Scott Medlock, who filed the suit for a phone conversation. Here's how he described the case. Well, you know, it kind of all started with grits for breakfast, which I was reading several years ago, and I believe you posted the video of Owen Murray testifying before the Texas legislature that this 
new drug for hepatitis C was going to be the standard of care in a couple of years. And now, you know, about five years later, the drug price has come down significantly. There's no doubt that it's the standard of care. Um, if you start, if you watch late night TV, you'll see advertising that says you should get tested for hepatitis C because the drug is so good that the drug company has kind of eliminated their own free world market. You know, they need to find more patients. Wow. And it happens to be that the one place where there's a ton of patients who aren't getting the drugs is prisons. So they've been doing these cases uh, successfully all over the country. And it was well past time that the issue comes to Texas. Wow. So I have two questions from that. First, um, how much has the price come down? Because a few years ago, they were saying this was $1,000 a pill, $63,000 for a drug treatment. Yeah, it's it's still, you know, expensive. It's just not, you know, ridiculously exorbitantly expensive like it was um, when the drug was, was brand new. Um, I think that the, the cost now is somewhere between like thirteen and 18000 per course of treatment. So, you know, a huge difference than um, than what it was before and, you know, a, a, a order of magnitude difference than uh, what it costs to have a liver transplant, which is, you know, the, the treatment these guys ultimately need if they are not treated for long enough and the, the disease uh, progresses far enough. Yeah, or isn't also has to be often a precursor to cancer, which means that they may have, if it metastasizes, we could be talking about huge, long courses of treatment. Absolutely. You know, um, hepatitis C is one of the leading causes of liver cancer, and liver cancer is one of the leading causes of death in uh, TDCJ. Wow. So you've also said that other states have already engaged in this litigation. Tell me what's been their experience. The, the plaintiff's experience in these other cases has been that they win. The classes get certified and the cases either settle or the, the plaintiffs win because it's, it's pretty egregious. This is the classic. The prison knows there is a correct course of treatment for people with hepatitis C and they are doing the incorrect course of treatment. The inmates who we represent have been going through the grievance process for years, getting their grievances com completed and they just get a standard response back that, no, you're not getting the treatment. Yeah. So, you know, the TDCJ really needs to, to be taken into court for this one. Has EDCJ been sued previously for deviating from the standard of care? Only by uh, pro se inmates who just don't have the, the knowledge and the uh, resources that they need to, to do this particular type of case. And this case requires expert testimony from doctors as to what the standard of care is. And then, you know, once a once an inmate hits that barrier, they're going to lose 100 times out of 100 because there's, you know, that that's an element of the claim. And if you don't have your, your expert dialed up, you, you can't get over that. This is potentially a watershed case then, right? Because Hep C, I'm sure, isn't the only disease that TDCJ is deviating from the medical community and how it's handled. Well, it's it's definitely the one where it's the most clear. You know, there's there's differences of medical opinion on a lot of things, like when do you start cancer treatment? When is chemo appropriate versus other treatments? Um, you know, stuff like that. You know, you you'll find different doctors who will say different things. So it's it's not clear that they're intentionally treating someone differently. But here, the medical community is pretty much unanimous 
that this is the standard of care. I mean, you, we've seen Dr. Murray say it's the standard of care and the, mm-hmm. the, the, the meeting minutes for the Correctional Managed Healthcare Committee, they routinely quote doctors on the committee saying, yes, this is the standard of care. So it's rare that there is a question this well settled in the medicine that they that they're not following. Right. At the same time, in in those hearings, and because like you say, I've been covering them on the blog for years and years. I have heard Owen Murray and many others say many times that oh, we're on the brink of not providing constitutional levels of care. Well, then the following budget session they will reduce spending <laughs> yeah. on health care. And that's happened at least twice since they've been saying that they're on the verge of not providing constitutional care. Then they provide less care. But no one ever says, oh, well, now it's not constitutional. Uh, So you're right. This is the one where it's absolutely clear. At the same time, it really does seem like there probably are some other areas, too, where at this point, nobody's getting great yeah. For, for sure. I don't think anybody would trade, you know, their their free world health care for what they get in TDCJ. And, you know, the, if I had a, a dollar for every time I'd received a letter from an inmate telling me about the atrocious health care that he or she is getting, I, I would be able to retire. I wouldn't have to do this work anymore because, the you know, the there are much bigger problems with the health care system in TDCJ than, than just hepatitis C. Um, but this is just the issue where the medicine is so settled that there's really no acceptable excuse for for denying the, the patients these drugs. And if anything, it may give the practitioners in TDCJ who know that they're deviating from standard more clout when they're meeting with folks at the Capitol to say that we have to do this. Right. Well, and one almost wonders if Dr. Murray is secretly excited to be sued in this case because it gives him a really big stick to go to the legislature with to say, like, look, we are going to be in a world of hurt and, you know, not only paying for these medicines, we're going to be paying these attorney's fees, too. You know, let's let's do the right thing here, even if it's you know not entirely for the right reason anymore. Well, whether or not he's excited, I'm certainly very excited. <laughs> <laughs> And congratulations on getting your complaint out. Tell us what what does victory look like? If you win, what's what's going to happen? What's going to change? What what would you see as the the right outcome? And what are the implications for TDCJ if you do win? The, the right outcome is when you're diagnosed with hepatitis C, you get the treatment. You know, there's some medical very small exceptions for when you wouldn't get started right away, like. Some small percentage of people, the body clears the infection naturally. Um, so you generally wait about six months after your first diagnosis to, to determine if you've got a chronic infection or if you've got the, you know, the, the super healthy body that could get rid of it naturally. But then after the, after you've been diagnosed for six months, everybody should be getting the treatment no matter how long you've had it, no matter how far it's progressed, no matter how much or how little damage it's done to your liver, everybody needs to get the treatment. And that's that's what we are looking for in the case. Excellent. Well, thank you, sir, for doing this. And I would be remiss if I didn't say congratulations on your prison heat litigation as well. <laughs> well, thank you. We are very, very proud of that. We're very proud to represent the, uh, the gentleman at the PAC unit. And it's you know, the one one of the highlights of my career was the day that I drove up to the pack unit to talk to some of my guys and there's a giant crane there 
lifting an air conditioning unit over the fence and putting it down next to the prison. Um, <laughs> that was a, that's one to write home about. And just talking to all those inmates as the AC has gone in, you know, the, the huge difference that you can just physically see that it's made in their lives. You talk to them in the air conditioned visiting area now, and it doesn't look like they're just on the verge of death because they've come out of the 100 degree temperatures in their living areas right before they talk to you. So it's a, it's something that we at the firm are very, very proud of. All right. Well, thank you all for your great work, and uh, thanks for chatting with us. Well, thank you all. I'm happy to do it anytime. Mandy, given that treating Texas prisoners with hep C could cost half a billion dollars, what are the implications if this lawsuit wins? Well, I think the financial implications are not as bad as some pe- someone might think. The half a billion figure is is probably a one-time expense. It's not that doesn't mean that the treatment costs are going to go to zero after that, but once you treat everyone in custody with Hep C, you're not going to have to treat the same number all over again. That's true. And and you will realize a savings in the course of a prisoner's incarceration. So if someone's in TDCJ custody for a long period of time and they have hep C, treating that person could cost $18,000, but it also means that you're less likely to have to spend you know, tens of thousand dollars treating that person for a transplant or liver cancer later on down the road. Right. And I was very surprised to hear Scott say that liver failure is one of the leading causes of death in TDCJ. I certainly wasn't aware of that. I wasn't either. I get the other thing that I think about, and I hope that this becomes part of the assessment with other diseases, is that prison custody, prison is in some ways an ideal treatment environment. Like you don't have to worry about follow up. Right. There. You know where the patient is. You can make sure that they take all the necessary doses to clear the disease. Right. And in this case, now that, as Scott mentioned, in the free world, the drugs have been so successful that they've driven the rates of hepatitis C way, way down. At this point, prison with more than 30% of inmates having hep C is probably driving hepatitis C everywhere. Yeah. Right. People go into prison every year. TDCJ releases half the prisoners in their custody, more or less. And those people come out and they're probably the main source of hepatitis C expanding at this point. No, I think you're right. When I was in college, I worked on some grants to alleviate MDRTB, which is basically it stands for multidrug resistant tuberculosis. And what they found was exactly that, that people were cycling in and out of prison where this disease was being spread. And then when they were released into their communities, they then transmitted it elsewhere. But we also were prioritizing medical care in prison because that was the environment where you could treat it. Right. So this is an example of prisons causing a public health crisis in the free world, being the source of the problem. It's it's not really even the case that, um, you know, oh, it's just worse in prison. No, it starts in prison. prison. Now. That's, <laughs> exactly. that's where it's coming from. Prisons making everyone less healthy as a result and putting people at risk. Now it's time to play fill in the blank in which Scott and I suggest different ways to finish the same sentence. First step, 
The Texas Public Policy Foundation recently issued a new policy brief written by a former sheriff criticizing police unions for focusing on ideological and partisan issues. They called out Texas's largest police union, the Combined Law Enforcement Associations of Texas, known as CLEAT, for opposing restrictions on misdemeanor arrests and police officer fitness requirements. They suggested educating the public and policymakers that police unions' political positions are often about maintaining their own power rather than, quote, legitimate public safety and liberty concerns. So Scott, fill in the blank. Police associations are different from other unions because... They're the ones who get called to bust the other unions, Is for, <laughs> for starters. You know, we, we have this example in Arlington right now where the General Motors employees there have gone out on strike. Well, it was in the news just within the last week. Who's called out to sweep the strikers aside and let the scabs come through to, to populate the plant? The Arlington Police Department. That's mm -hmm. the deal. And, you know, when we had Ron DeLord, the founder of Cleet, mm -hmm. on for an interview about a year and a half ago, he described the Boston police strike in 1919. We just had the 100th anniversary of that on September 9th. And just to refresh listeners' memory, in Boston, the entire police department went out on strike. They were replaced by immediately yeah, all fired. Military. And uh, soldiers were brought in to maintain public order during that period. And Ron described how at that time the police union reached out to the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, at the time the CIO did not exist. Mm -hmm. They reached out and asked the AFL to go out on general strike with them in solidarity. And AFL went back to their people and they all said, hells no <laughs> these are the same people who were busting skulls when we went out on strike why are we going to help them and and ron attributed the fact that to this day most police unions are not part of the afl-cio not part of the formal labor movement that's why in texas they're all police associations instead yeah. of unions well Arlington shows that really hasn't changed that much. And CLEAT and other organizations, uh, law enforcement organizations, were very happy to be carved out when they're stripping away union members' rights to have dues checkoffs at the legislature and things like that. And so it really is a, a, a very different animal. Yeah, it's funny. I... um. I was going to say that they aren't different and that I was sort of heartened by TPPF's criticism that really, at the end of the day, law enforcement unions, their expertise extends only to the terms of employment. Right. And, and meet the conditions of employment. But they aren't policy experts. They don't know what they're talking about when they're taking a position on custodial interrogations or even some punishment issues. In, in those instances, I think it makes a lot more sense just to let the heads of police agencies talk about what is and isn't feasible from their management perspective. That's certainly right. And I think what this public policy report is reacting to explicitly was the police unions killing a bunch of reform bills this session. The Sandra Bland Act was one. Again, the, the, the police fitness requirements is kind of a funny one. But they stuck their nose into all sorts of stuff, even your death penalty issues, for reasons that are just inexplicable. What, what expertise do they have in that area? None at all. But they're spending most of their time on these public policy questions. I mean, to the extent that, that you're talking about their pension or something, absolutely. They have a place at the table. That's compensation and benefits mm -hmm. and workplace conditions, all, all that stuff. 
But to the extent that you're just saying, no, we should punish harsher and have more arrest authority and be able to arrest for more and more things and, and you can't restrict it in any way, that's just not their place. No, no. And, and, and I think, you know, you saw some pushback with it, you know, with the bills, the death penalty bills that they took positions on, they really went outside their expertise. Like and, when I spoke to them, they would just say, well, what if you, they shoot a cop? You know, you know, it doesn't matter if the person was in a psychotic episode and it's not deterrable anyway. They just felt like anytime a, a cop was shot, someone should out, someone else should be killed. And that kind of reaction demonstrated that they didn't know what they were talking about. And I, I think they lost credibility. Right. Well, they absolutely lost credibility because by the end of the session, they were being openly denounced by the Speaker Pro Tem on the on the House floor. <laughs> and he's basically saying they don't have credibility on these policy questions. He, he was very explicit about that. And there was a lot of bipartisan agreement with that sentiment by the end of session because they had really overplayed their hand to such a great extent. Next one. In the Houston mayor's race, Mayor Sylvester Turner's most prominent opponent, millionaire attorney Tony Busby, has insisted in his stump speech that Houston is one of the most dangerous cities in America and that, quote, all types of crime are on the rise. In response, he says Houston should boost its number of police officers by nearly 40 percent. But Houston Chronicle reporters St. John Barnett Smith and Jasper Schur debunked Busby's claims about crime using official data and commentary from national experts. They found that crime rates in Houston are near all-time lows, and among large U.S. cities, Houston ranks in the middle of the pack on crime, prompting Busby's campaign to declare the newspaper its, quote, enemy. So, Mandy, fill in the blank. Tony Busby's crime claims are... <laughs> Nonsense. You know, one of the best criticisms of American politics that I've ever heard was that too often as voters, we look to outcomes and not how politicians make decisions with whatever limited information they have at hand. And in this case, we have a political candidate refusing to talk about data and demonstrating that he can't work with stakeholders. You know, if someone disagrees with him, he's he's not going to try and work with them. They're the enemy. That's <laughs> yeah. right. So, I mean, he sort of disqualifies himself from the race as he's talking. And I really hope we get to a point where voters are able to think of it, think of this that way. Right. Well, I, I thought that his crime claims were, were demagogic. Um, again, I think <laughs> again. that's, that's our theory and that's, that's our theme here for, for Houston politicians, I guess. But the reality is that, that when you look at crime data, frankly, it's very complex. There are so many different types of crime. Nearly all nonviolent crimes have plummeted in Houston. Mm -hmm. Among violent crimes, there are a couple of categories that have increased. Most categories have decreased. And there's even some data issues around some of the increases. For example, rape cases everywhere have gone up a lot since the mm -hmm. Uniform Crime Report changed its definitions a few years ago. And then reporting increased as a result of Me Too. Yeah. And so we don't completely know whether that means there's more of those crimes or whether the change in definition and increased reporting just means that we know more about it. Mm -hmm. So how you interpret it really requires some nuance. And there's some open questions that we don't have the answers to and that an honest person couldn't say we have answers to. Yeah. And so exploiting that uncertainty to just say, no, it's terrible. 
is intellectually dishonest, and especially when you ignore all of the areas where crime's going down to say, no, crime in all categories is on the rise. Well, that's in fact just a lie. (laughs) Just isn't even remotely true. And it means that you can't have an honest conversation about the areas where it is going up, where you might want to delve a little deeper and say, okay, we need to look into this category and see what's really going on here. So it's it's counterproductive, it's demagogic, it's incredibly disappointing that that's where the terms of debate yeah. are. Now, that said, I do want to give a shout-out to the two reporters because when politicians just make expressly false claims like that, mm-hmm. for years and years, reporters didn't know what to do with that. And I feel like that in the wake of the Donald Trump era, the reporters have had to figure out for the first time, okay... How can I do this so that I'm not giving someone who's just lying a platform? Yeah. And I think what made Busby the angriest in this story was the reporters just called it out. They would quote him saying, all types of crime are on the rise. And then they would say, well, no, these 10 categories are going (laughs) down and these two have gone up. And here's the experts and here's the data. And just expressly rebutted the falsehoods. And that is journalists having a learning curve here in this yeah. in this new era and and I guess it's worth mentioning that Busby was one of of Donald Trump's biggest Houston fundraisers so you know maybe there's some stylistic connection there but I thought they deserved a lot of credit for how they approached that Now it's time for our rapid-fire segment we call The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? I was born ready. Let's do this. When Dallas reported a bump in crime rates earlier this year, Governor Greg Abbott deployed DPS troopers to help patrol the city. But after allegations of over-policing in minority communities and a shooting by DPS troopers at a traffic stop, the agency is withdrawing its officers after just three months. Scott, what lessons should we take from this experience deploying the highway patrol in a major Texas city? I feel like we've learned that urban law enforcement is a different animal from what the highway patrol does. That that giving tickets on I-40 or whatever is just different from going into South Dallas and dealing with people at the level that urban cops have to do every day. And they were unprepared. Colonel Steve McCraw from DPS had basically said the only people who were criticizing DPS were those who'd been arrested by them. (laughs) Well, in fact, it was like local city council people and, and much broader than that. So... Hopefully, despite those public comments, they've learned a lesson and and won't stick their nose in where it really doesn't belong in the future. Dallas, we now know from their staffing study, does have enough cops to cover what they need to do. And it's not really the place of the highway patrol to jump in and do that. Next up, police officers in Dallas have been indicted for murder four times in the last three years, with Officer Amber Geiger's murder trial beginning this week for the shooting death of Botham Jean, a worship leader with deep community ties who was shot in his own home. Geiger claimed she thought she was entering her own apartment, which was on a different floor. Mandy, does this represent a turning point regarding deaths in police custody? Not really. I am happy that they're prosecuting someone for shooting a citizen who was sitting in his own living room, watching TV. But indictments for police shootings, even in Dallas, are still pretty low. We're, t- we're talking about you know less than 2% of the time. And that is appalling by any metric. 
Um, so I think we need to see a significant increase before we say that we're at a turning point or, you know, approaching a prosecution level that would lead to deterrence. Last one, after the governor in Oklahoma appointed a religious prison ministries advocate to the parole board, parole rates have increased 41% and commutations, which had dwindled to almost zero, increased 1,300%. What lessons should Texas take from this example? Two things, really. First, that it is okay to have parole rates increase, and there's not necessarily going to be some huge political backlash. Oklahoma is a very conservative place. If they can accomplish that, we can too. And second, that who is on the parole board really matters. In Texas, it's almost all ex-cops and prosecutors and people who are very much on one side of the equation. And appointing someone who does have prisoners' interests more in mind, someone from that religious prison ministry's background, has made a big impact. And I'd love to see somebody like Prison Fellowship or some of the religious ministries here in Texas recommending people for the parole board to the governor. And and I think it would really help for us to get more diversity on that body. Yeah, diverse groups make better decisions. All right, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, this is Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzullo with the Texas Defender Service. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, or listen to it on my blog, Rich for Breakfast. We'll be back next month with more and hopefully better news. And until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen. The incarceration train keeps rolling, rolling down the line. It's filled with pain and sorrow, but the driver is doing just fine. Just fine. And the passengers in cargo, when they get to the end of the line, gonna learn this train went nowhere, Lord, and the ticket price show is high. Stop the train. 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 I'm getting off. When the train pulls into the station, when the driver blows his horn, my baby will be there waiting, Lord, just as sure as the day you were born. And the doors of the train will open, and the platform people will flood. A voice rang from heaven saying your debt was paid with blood. Stop the train, 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 stop the train. I'm getting on. Stop the train, 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 stop the train. I'm getting on.